In this episode, we mistakenly call it episode 90, when it's really episode 91. We don't remember this until much later in the episode, so in the spirit of not confusing you, I drop this thing in here. Good night. So the kid's computer has been getting like so many pop-ups. Like every time you click anything anywhere, a new pop-up pops up. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're trying to get through this math lesson. And Isabel's like, oh, this new pop-up blocker I installed is like terrible. And I was like, what did you install? What did and you install like, on my I computer? Goog- I Googled pop-up blocker and I downloaded the first thing that came up on Google. Oh, God. I was like, do you think that maybe... Maybe that's actually what's causing all of the pop-ups because this happened right after you downloaded it. Uh, she was like, but it was on the first page of Google. That means it's legit. Clearly. <laughs> if Google says it, it must be true. <laughs> oh, Lord. I mean, you know, you kind of defeat the purpose of having antivirus if you deliberately go out of your way to download spyware. Like, welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. Welcome to episode 90. My name is Chad. I'm Liz. And we are talking about Words of Radiance, starting at interlude nine, going through chapter 61. That's right. And our next book club will cover chapters 62 through 67. Boom. Boom. What's our spoiler policy, Chad? So Liz has read these books. I have not read these books. And as a result, we will not spoil anything past chapter 61 of Words of Radiance. Now, also of interest to note is that Liz has read everything in the Cosmere, and she knows all the cool tiebacks to other series and things of that nature. We may talk about that some we may talk about some of that stuff, but only in as much as it doesn't spoil anything for any of the other books. We're not about that spoiling, yo. At least not in this podcast. Do you know what I like about this podcast? What's that? I can say yo as many times as I want. You can. And you don't mock me. No, Like our I don't. children do. <laughs> Listen, yo predates all of our children. I mean, I know our, our children can't hear us right now, but I guarantee they've sensed a disturbance <laughs> in the force. They're, they're, they're writhing in their beds a little bit. <laughs> They're, they're getting the Mom, itch. Mom, don't uh, say yo. Uh, not in front of my friends. Look, that's a Baltimore thing, right? I mean, it's not just a Baltimore thing, but it's more of a Baltimore thing than anybody else. So we get to say it even when it's out of date. Am straight. Yo. Yo don't know what they're talking about. So what do you think about this section that we read two weeks ago, but are now... Starts off with a bang, ends on a whimper. A little bit. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but but the first chapter is quite interesting, the first interlude. We find out something really cool in interlude 10, you know, and then we get us some stuff that's not all that great. Some 
you know, some fairly interesting stuff happens with Shallan, uh, but it starts off strong in Interlude 9. That's right. Interlude 9 is called Lift. In this interlude, a precocious, irreverent orphan thief named Lift is getting ready to rob the Bronze Palace of Azir. Even more amazing than Lift's apparent ability to scale walls without footholds is her ability to avoid being a boring fantasy cliché. She does this by breaking into rich people's homes to eat their dinners and teasing her spren Wendell. Wendell is surprisingly self-aware for a spren, and he most definitely does not approve of Lift having surge-binding abilities. His attempts to teach Lift about her powers are constantly being stymied, but that doesn't stop him from helping her break into the palace, where the viziers are reviewing applications to choose the new leader of Azir, the Prime Akasix. None of them are terribly keen on getting the job, as the last two primes have been murdered by the assassin in white. Lift and her fellow thief Gox are intercepted mid-larceny by a man that Lift calls Darkness, the same man we saw kill a kindly shoemaker in previous interludes. He's been tracking Lift, and he manages to capture her using a strange creature with shimmering eyes that is able to suck the stormlight from her. We then discover that Lift has a unique ability. She can metabolize food into stormlight. Nifty! She escapes, but not before Gox is killed by one of Darkness's minions. She manages to heal him using the Surge of Regrowth, which sets off a flurry of events culminating in Gox being made the new Prime, giving him the power to secure her release from Darkness. For now. Whoo! Man, there's a lot, it's a lot that in that interview. That summary just kept going and going. You know, I tried to pare it down a couple of times, but everything in it was pretty important. The art of summary is editing. But, you know, if I leave something important out, then we get to the end and you go, you know, you forgot to mention. <laughs> do I do that? Once or twice. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of beats. There's a lot of things going on in this chapter, both from a character building standpoint, because we have all these new characters, and Lyft is a pretty interesting character. Mm-hmm but also from a plot standpoint. There's a, a little bit of information we learn, I feel like, in terms of the way things kind of work in the world. Mm-hmm. But but more than that is really just kind of... The thing that I think is interesting is just Lyft and her relationship with her friend and, and kind of what it what it shows us about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's actually quite a bit of world building crammed in there as well in little offhanded remarks that mm-hmm. aren't fully addressed. It's very interesting. And Lyft is an interesting character. What did you think of her? She was fun. I mean, she's interesting. I like her sort of irreverent, you know, streak. The fact that she is this incredibly skilled thief very blatant about the fact that she's a thief but her whole goal is to break into the fanciest places she can so she can steal their dinner yes i love the stealing the dinners bit um that really endears lift and we know that we realize why food is so important to her lift through a a visit to the the night watcher and visiting the old magic somehow has received the ability to be able to metabolize food into stormlight she doesn't need to suck it from spheres around her and there's this really cool scene where she's finally captured by darkness 
and his minions and she's being taken away and he's sending them on ahead meticulously carefully removing the spheres from the lanterns in the hallway down the way you know so she can't suck the the storm and she's going what are they doing yeah because <laughs> it's so foreign to her it doesn't make any sense she, she has no idea and he thinks he's being so careful and then she's able to to snatch a roll and and it's like this what moment yeah it's pretty it's pretty awesome the thing that I like the most about Lyft, what really captivates me, and it's a subtle thing, and it's tied to her being part of the, the edge dancers, is how deeply she cares. And we find out that the edge dancers' second ideal that Lyft finds at the end of this interlude is, I will remember those who have been forgotten. And so Lyft is this character, this street kid. She grew up in the city the city of Ral Elorim. It's called the City of Shadows. It's like this big bad. It's it's like uh, it's kind of like when you tell someone that you're from Baltimore, um, and they say, "Oh, is it? Is it like that show, The Wire?" <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." That's anyway. It's that kind of that kind of place where it's like, oh, not a place that you want to grow up on the streets of. No, she's this kind of hardened street criminal. But she cares about the people who have been forgotten. And when Gox is taken captive and finally killed, you know, Wendell says to her, like, aren't you used to this? I know you've seen this before. Mm -hmm. And she's she has it. And when she finds those words, I will remember those who have been forgotten. That's when she gains the power of regrowth. It's not that she's not being exposed to death. It's that she's not used to it. Not just, hardened to it. Yeah, correct. I just want to make that clarification. You know what it just occurred to me is that these edge dancers would be the ultimate healers mm -hmm. in a in a battle because they're super fast, super agile. You can't get a hold of them. They're running around, healing mofos left and right. Nobody can kill them. Healing mofos left and right. Healing mofos. Bam, you're healed. Bam, you're healed. Get up, mofo. <laughs> you're welcome. On your feet. I got to roll, bitches. <laughs> She's stuffing sausages in her mouth. I mean, yeah. not that all the edge dancers can do that. I'm just picturing Lyft. So Lyft made a visit to the old magic. Clearly. Her, we find this out through kind of side conversations with her spren, Wendell, who is a strange, like vine growing looking spren. Um, he's described as a, tr a thin, twisting trail of vines. And he refers to the Night Watcher as his mother, mm -hmm. you know, and he kind of, in, in, in his sort of nonstop complaining about Lyft because she's not what he considers a night radiant, a proper night's radiant. He, he asks her, what did, what boon did my mother give you? And, and mm -hmm. he mentions that the circle that sent him chose her because she had visited his mother. Yes. Yeah, he says the spren was sent to her by quote, the ring, which I presume is not a physical ring because it's capital R. Right. I presume it's a group of people, like a ruling council or something. Because she had visited the old magic, it says our mother had blessed her. And we presume that this is Night Watcher. Right, because Night Watcher is who's been mentioned in conjunction with the old magic up until now. 
Well, and it also seems as though she has some sort of boon. Right. Because she has, well, she has sort of two weird things. First, the weird food investiture of Stormlight as opposed to the way it normally happens. And two, that she's able to make physical contact with her spren. Yes. And not that Kaladin and Syl can't, not that there isn't some capability there for her to make contact, but Wendell seems to be able to actually exert a, a serious degree of force. On her. She is able Correct. to use yeah. him as handholds and footholds. Yeah, he's not making, he's not punching things. Right, he's, he's we we know that he's not any more powerful than Syl. You know, mm-hmm. he's not even able to kind of bat a dinner roll towards her, but he's able to make a ladder that she can climb up. And he says that he thinks it's because she's partly in the cognitive realm for some reason. So we don't know if that's something that might have something to do with edge dancers specifically or but something Wendell to do with seems pretty surprised by it true or something that has to do with her boon or or who knows what else it might actually be but those are sort of the two weird things that sort of violate the rules that we have to this point been taught so Wendell is a hilarious character as well. And I love Brandon Sanderson writes the funny sidekick really well. Uh, in yeah, my I opinion. With, I would agree with that. I yeah, enjoy yeah. it. I enjoy his funny sidekicks. And the relationship between Wendell and Lyft is funny because, well, I just love the fact that the only Spren we've seen who seems to have his mind and memories mostly intact and hasn't had to figure all this out from scratch, is paired with someone who has no interest yeah. in understanding <laughs> anything that's going on. You know, you have uh, Syl and Pattern, who both came to their respective Knights Radiant, like really just having to figure everything out. And you have Kaladin and, and Shallan who are like, what's going on? What's happening to me? What's happening to you? What is this? What is that? You know, and uh, Wendell comes out like, well, you're a Knight's Radiant and that you're going to use this investiture to perform this act. And she and Lyft just does not care. D- don't want to hear it. It's also the fact that she goes out of her way to tick him off just for fun. Calling him a void bringer. <laughs> Calls him a void bringer. Oh, you're just, they're after you, Voidbringer, you know. No stealing souls today. We're not here for that. Oh, don't get me mad. I'll go douse myself in holy water. (laughs) So it's a pretty funny relationship between the two of them. I do think, I, I, I highlighted earlier the idea that Brandon Sanderson has shown us these rules of kind of, this is how magic works in my world. And I think... Now we're seeing more of the ways in which he's kind of showing us the exceptions. Right. And Lyft is one of these exceptions because of the basis of those things that we've already discussed here. Right. And we see this character Darkness again. Yes. We've seen him several times throughout the series. And that's just her name for him. So we don't we don't right. have an actual name or know a great deal about him and really this is the chapter where we learn just about anything about him at all right but he shows up constantly he was at gavilar's murder he was the guy who as you stated in your very eloquent summary (laughs) he was the man who killed the 
Cobbler. And, and, and listen, in this podcast, we have an affection for fictional cobblers. Like, you don't go around putting swords through cobblers. Neither the human shoemaking kind of cobbler nor the delicious, fruity, crumb-topped cobblers. No. We're defenders of cobblers of all kinds. Listen, I don't, I don't fuck around when it comes to crumb topping, all right? <laughs> it's not an area where we play. <laughs> this is not a game. This is not a game. You got to get the butter to room temperature. I have no idea. <laughs> no, it's actually the opposite. What? <laughs> Listeners, you want cold butter. Cold butter? Yes. All right. Okay. Well, so this darkness cat is the embodiment of lawful neutral. Like, he's not, he doesn't care about good. He doesn't care about bad. Mm-hmm. He just cares about the goddamn law. Doesn't anyone care yeah, about I, the law anymore? I'm the law in these here parts. He's Taylor himself. It's like, I understand that you have rounded up on some of your tax documents. Well, blam! <laughs> Sledgehammer! <laughs> he's Odium's roll dog. But, you know, he's also got an agenda. He's not kind of going around just just randomly enforcing the law wherever he goes. He yes. Is, he is following an agenda of wiping out potential Knights Radiant, but not willing to go beyond the boundaries of the law to do it. When he killed the cobbler, we heard him say, I had to look for a very long time. To find my reason that for I could being come able to kill you. you. Yeah. You know, because here's this cobbler. He's done nothing wrong. But, you know, 40 years ago, he had uh, delivered a poisoned bottle of wine to someone and it, and it wound up killing them. Mm-hmm. Unbeknownst to him. Unbeknownst to him. Yeah. Uh, he was just the delivery person. And this was this was the reason that this darkness was able to go ahead and kill him and he tells lift that her kind is going to bring a desolation back to the world they can't exist so he is systematically hunting down potential knights radiant but he's doing it within the boundaries of the laws of whatever country that he finds them in which is an interesting thing now first of all we have to ask ourselves do we believe him and his stated purpose i think yes And the reason for that is because he tells her this after he has caught her and believes that he's going to execute her. Of course, she gets away, but but at that point, he doesn't know that. So there's no reason why he would lie. Right. So I believe him in his stated purpose. But at the same point in time, there are still two things that don't quite add up. The first being... Why are you so obsessed with the law if this is a, in your mind, a potentially existential threat that you believe that these people are going to potentially end the world, yet you're willing to wait years and years and years for any kind of weird legal loophole 
to go out and kill them. That's just a weird sort of stance to take. And it's clearly motivated by something in his personality or some affiliation or something we don't know. And then the second part is just the fact that he's so obviously wrong, like that the desolations are coming and these are the people who should be able to stop it. Unless he's fighting on the other side. That's why I joked around and call him Odium's Roll Dog. Because whether he realizes it or not, he's helping the desolations. Or he's helping them when they come to be more effective at or making it more difficult for the humans to be able to rebuff them and survive it. So it's sort of a it's a weird thing. Those are two good points. I, I would say to the first one. This actually gets directly addressed when one of his minions, so they 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 try to grab Lyft, she escapes, there are minions and people running everywhere, and one of the minions manages to grab Gox. Now, Gox is Lyft's sort of buddy thief, but he's someone that she's just met, but he's got a knife to his throat and threatens to kill him if Lyft doesn't surrender and Lyft calls his bluff, starts to run, he cuts Gox's throat. And Darkness says, that's unacceptable. He says, in, so in this country, in Asia, you have to have paperwork to do anything. Proper paperwork has to be filed. And he says, you did not have the paperwork filed to kill that child. And his minion says, but isn't what we're doing more important than that? Aren't we above their laws? And he says, absolutely not. The law is the only thing we have, the only sure thing in this world. And he tells his minion, like, you're going to submit yourself to justice and that's it. I'm done with you, like I'm turning you over. So his sticking to the law isn't just isn't just a foible. It's not something that he is ever going to go back on, it looks like. No, that part of it I get. What I just what I don't get is the sort of why behind it. And right. And I, and I don't think we're going to get it at this point. No. Because you know, he says the law is the only thing we have. But by that token is what allows Lyft to get away. It also sets up a circumstance by which you could have some incredibly weird little state or crazy laws that don't make any sense, and he would have to abide by them. So it's just sort of a weird thing. So I'm just going to read really quickly a bit of the scene, the first, it's not the very first mention of this character because we see him mentioned very in passing in the, the Way of Kings in the beginning. But the first we kind of get any dialogue from him, this is the flashback to Yasna's perspective on Gavilar's murder. She's like running around the palace. She runs across these two characters having a cryptic conversation. Our Scarface man um, is talking to a shorter guy and and he says to Scarface, I'm worried about Ash. Scarface responds, you're worried about everything. His companion says, she's getting worse. We weren't supposed to get worse. Am I getting worse? I think I feel worse. Scarface says, shut up. His companion says, I don't like this. What we've done was wrong. That creature carries my lord's own blade. We shouldn't have let him keep it. So just keep just that's just a, a good conversation to keep in your mind. As you're trying to figure out who this guy is. 
So when they talk about that creature has our Lord's blade, it seems that they're referencing Seth. That's a pretty good assumption. I would think so. And Ash, we think they're referencing, is the mystery woman who's running around destroying all of the artwork in Azir, which is where yeah. we which is where we are. And this is the palace where she was doing it. And the evidence of that actually comes up very subtly in the background mm-hmm. as the eyes of some of the heralds, or I think one particular herald, is removed. What yes, one of the heralds has their face scratched out of a painting. Yes, one of the heralds. Um, we also know that in the beginning of the Way of Kings, the prologue where Seth is walking through, he notices that the statue of Shalash, the herald, is missing. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yep. So those are the pieces of that. So there's really puzzle. only two other things that I have here in this chapter. And the first is that you can't run through a kitchen with a shard blade, dude. Like, OSHA is going to hear about this. Because <laughs> darkness, like, whips at his shard blade, and he's just running around carrying it. Yeah, it's got it's either a tiny shard blade or a huge kitchen, or, <laughs> or somewhere there's a pot boy with a dead arm. <laughs> right, yeah, absolutely. Right? <laughs> that we just didn't get to hear about. I'm sure that's not legal. <laughs> darkness actually three things so the other thing that i just thought of when i was uh, talking about this is so this guy is running around exhibiting the same sort of surge binding Mm -hmm. that all the other knights radiance are exhibiting and yet he apparently is out there prosecuting people doing the same thing Mm -hmm. so it seems to be that leads me to believe that one of two things is going on. Mm-hmm. Either he's a hypocrite mm-hmm. or he doesn't have a shard blade. He has an honor blade. Mm-hmm. I believe it's the latter because I don't think he's a hypocrite. It's a good guess. All right. And then the last thing I wanted to bring up is at the end of the chat. Well, actually, not the end of the chapter. So much stuff happens in this chapter. In the middle of this chapter... When they first capture Lyft, they bring out a Larkin, mm-hmm. and they suck the stormlight from her. Right. Now, we saw this creature before, and I think it was either Interlude 5 or 6, I don't remember which one, Ryson, right. where she goes to the island, and they bring her one of these after she jumps off a cliff and breaks all the bones in her body. Mm-hmm. We didn't know then what they did. But we knew, and what we were told is that kings would pay, uh, you know, a king's ransom to get one of these things. And now we understand why. To get the corpse of one of these things. Yes, correct. Yeah, there weren't supposed to be any left alive. And now we found out there are two alive. A couple other things that I found interesting about darkness. A couple things he said at the end of the interlude, after... Lyft's release is secured by so the way that it's secured is that she heals Gox after he's had his throat cut and the the viziers use this as an excuse to make him the prime because none of them want to be the prime nobody in the kingdom wants to be the prime after the last two have been killed within a number of weeks 
So they make him the prime. Darkness says, oh, yes. He, they say, praise Yezir, who is, what is their name for the, the Herald of Kings. So he says, praise Yezir, the Herald of Kings. May he lead in wisdom if he ever stops drooling. Yeah. So that's just a weird thing to say, a kind of like oddly specific thing to say uh, about someone else's deity. Yeah, the um, the other thing that's interesting about that is it seems that because they didn't see her, they didn't see Lyft bring him back to life or it yeah. happens kind of after she walks away, they presume that he did it. Yes. So they think that he is going to be able to regenerate himself and survive should Seth come back around. Possibly. I, th- I think they're grasping at any reason to put anyone yeah. else in that position. Yeah, good point. Good point. So it is funny. Gox wakes up and says, apparently I, I performed a miracle. <laughs> and Lyft says, good for you. Can I have your dinner? Yeah. <laughs> and that's how the chapter ends. And that's how it ends. Interlude 10 is called Seth. In this interlude, Seth enters his emo phase. You thought he already went through that phase, but you were wrong. (laughs) This is one seriously tortured dude. He faces the fact that he was banished and made into a killer for no good reason, and that all of the blood he has spilled is on his own head. He stands on top of the great tower in Eurythiru and screams into the void for a while, then sets out to find some answers. Or kill somebody. He's not picky, really. Man. This one mopey motherfucker. He is a mopey mofo, for sure. Well, what, what I'll say about Brandon Sanderson, or or I mean, it, I'll, what I'll say about this set of books, because I don't know what this means for his other books, but it's if Seth is kind of the big bad, or at least one of the big bads, he's the Darth Vader kind of figure in this story. He really makes a sympathetic villain. Mm-hmm. I mean... He's still a villain, mm-hmm. but he makes for a very sympathetic one because mm-hmm. it is a shitty situation. And I have to tell you, this chapter is the first chapter where I started to really actually think about his backstory because one of the things I think that they did with that was fairly clever is, not they, Brandon, one of the things I think he did that was clever is that he starts us off with Seth and we we don't really know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. We don't we don't really have a sense of it. And it's in the very, very beginning of the story when so much is unknown to us that we don't we know we're not going to get answers to every question. So we're not necessarily looking in the sharpest of detail and asking all the questions because it's so early in the book. So when he calls himself truthless and he's been exiled from Shinovar and it's because he said that the the Voidbringers were returning, we never asked the question, what was it that he saw that led him to think that? Like, did he see something? Ha- did he see a Night Radiant? Did he see... A Voidbringer, did he see evil Sprint? Like, what did he see? We never asked that question, and it's not until this chapter that I start to think, wait a minute, what did he see? And then the other question 
that it was just always sort of something I just assumed and didn't even think to dig into until this chapter is, wait a minute, they called him truthless and sent him away, and yet he has this honor blade, which is like, like uber incredibly rare. Not like shard blades. Place is lousy with shard blades. <laughs> you trip on a shard blade every other step. <laughs> but these honor blades that impart a lot of these same skills as a Knight's Radiant without having the Nihel Bond, we really, that's really the only one we know of for sure. We mm-hmm. suspect that Darkness has one, but but if even if that's accurate, only two that we know of. There's probably, it would, I would assume, 10, one for each of the heralds. Right. Where did he get this from? Was he from Darkness's Lords? I guess so. I mean, where was, you know, what weird thing did he step into? Yeah. To wit to witness this and thus be called truthless and even walk away with a shard with an honor blade. Mhm. Then we and here's the other bombshell in this in this chapter. We've now been reading like 1600 pages mm-hmm. about your theory. Everybody's looking for it. Everyone's looking Everybody, for your theory. Like, can't find it anywhere. It's the lost city of Atlantis. <laughs> and this guy's just sitting up there swinging his feet. I love that our first glimpse throwing of your is it like isn't like the clouds part and Shalon finally glimpses. No, it's just like <laughs> Seth's just chill, just chilling there. He's just spitting sunflower I just seeds. Swung by your theory on my way, on my way to kill some more guys. Scratching his butt. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. So this is a one hundred story tall tower yes made of glass apparently well glass windows facing the east glass windows facing the east this thing would be visible for incredible distances around right it's in the mountains so there goes my pure lake theory right it's it's in the mountains and it, the the other thing that's weird about it is that Seth, when he leaves, he flies, you know, using stormlight to a nearby village. Now, I don't know how far away this is from any sort of notable cities. It's certainly conceivable that this incredibly huge building on top of an incredibly huge mountain would not actually be visible, you know, once you get to a certain distance away, right? You're 40, 50 miles away, you're not going to be able to see it. But it would be strange to me that the people in this village would not be able to, wouldn't know where this is. 
And are there any villages in Rashar that are not affiliated with some greater government? Do we know how far the villi- how far he flies though? We, no, we don't. I mean, it could be it could be quite some way. I, I, we just know that he flies a certain distance based on the stormlight that he has on him. So we yeah, don't really certainly. know how far he can go. I just sort of think that I just sort of think that I mean, if he's falling at the speed of gravity, you know, 200 miles an hour, he can only hold if he can hold stormlight for a half an hour, he's 100 miles away. I just tend to think that a 100-story tall tower in a on a mountain range most people within 100 miles would probably know of it. But I don't know. It, Unless it's completely inaccessible by foot. It could also be in a valley. Right. Where it, you know, which would reduce, you know, how likely you are to, to be able to see it from a right. distance. So, I mean, it's strange that nobody knows where it is. Not, not impossible. Yeah. Did I, did I tell you about the huge rabbit hole I went down trying to figure out where your theory is? Oh, yes. I mean, no, you didn't tell me, but I want you to. So I was convinced before that it was in the Pure Lake because of something that I saw in or read about in one of Dalinar's visions. Mm-hmm. I didn't see the vision. It's a book. <laughs> but something I read about. And... That clearly is not the case. So then I thought, so he goes south from here, and it seems clear to me that he is going after Taravangian. So he's going to Carboranth, mm-hmm. right? Not to say that's a given, but that seems the obvious choice. Right. That's who has his oath stone. That's where it seems like he's going. Well, north of Carboranth, there are two mountain ranges, the first being the Horn Eater Peaks and the second being the mountain ranges that are just to the south of Pure Lake. So considering that we spent all this time talking about the Horn Eater Peaks and all the mysteries that are there, I thought, aha, that's where Eurothero is. It's in one of these upside down lakes. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere in the Horn Eater Peaks. These, there's all these relationships going back to the Horn Eater Peaks. So that's where it is. So I searched both books up to this point for everything I could find about the Horn Eaters, the, everything about the, the mountains, everything about their culture. Nope, not there. <laughs> <laughs> that is not it. Red herring. Well, I love your rabbit holes. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. One other thing. This whole realization that Seth has that he's been killing for a complete lie has got to remind you of the story. I forget, I forget the details of it, but the story about the culture who was just going out and killing anybody who Mm -hmm. made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And then they go to confront the despot and find out he's been dead. Right. And then everybody in the town realizes that they've been doing this for no reason at all. Right. And we don't really get to stick around there, but what we do find out, correct me if I'm wrong, is that they essentially just burn the place down. Yes. So is that foreshadowing? 
Yeah, I think you're <laughs> meant to. Yeah, I think that's definitely deliberate. I think you're meant to think of that story. So if although why Wit tells it to Kaladin, we don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's so he can at some point understand Seth. Maybe. Or to let us know that if you thought he was crazy now. <laughs> oh, just wait. Ooh, yeah. Okay, chap- interlude 11 is called New Rhythms. Ashonai has been wearing storm form for 15 days. Wearing the form has opened her mind to new rhythms. Rhythms such as ridicule. And made attuning to the old rhythms more distasteful to her. In particular, when she attunes to the rhythm of peace, she hears her own voice screaming at her. The ruling council of listeners are concerned about this and about Ashonai's abrupt change in behavior. They balk about her plan to ask all of the listeners to take the new form in order to bring about the great storm that is brewing. Ashonai and Venli are forced to round up the dissenters with plans to eventually eliminate them. Thankfully, the dissenters escape, among them Ashonai's closest comrade Thud and her own mother. Ashonai sends soldiers after them, but nothing will impede her plan to bring the destruction of the storm down on the Alethi army that is making its way toward Narak. So Ashonai becomes kind of a bee. Oh, yeah. She's got resting bee actuality. <laughs> resting bee personality. Yeah. Yeah. She's not really a bitch. It's just, no, no, no. Yeah. She, no she's absolutely <laughs> a bitch. So I really want to like these Parshendi chapters much more than I actually do. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I'm really kind of disappointed in the Parshendi in general. So everything I just said about Seth, about being this conflicted, sympathetic, you know, villain, and I always wanted the Parshendi to be sort of this misunderstood, not really villainous people. They're just, nobody understands what's going on with them. And that part of it has sort of come true. And yet I feel like Brandon Sanderson created them like that's all the further he thought about it. I'm sure I'm not right in that aspect. Oh, I'm getting the eyes. I'm getting the eyes. There's no eyes here. I don't know what you're talking about. I just, I feel like these characters really get short shrift. Like, and I don't know. I just don't, I don't find them very interesting. I really wanted to like them, but it's just, I don't know. You feel like it's like, Okay, now we have red eyes and we're evil. (laughs) Well, also that there's so many opportunities to have actually, I feel like, been able to do more interesting stuff with them. But he's just taking a very obvious tack. I mean, there's just so much more ahead, so. Famous last words, she said. I mean... Yeah, you just you have to keep reading. I, 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 I hear what you're saying at this point in the story, baby, why you would think that. But there's definitely some major, major plot twists ahead in the story. All right. So one interesting thing here is there's a strange spren that's following Ashonai. It's shaped like a comet with rings of light and um, 
it seems to have something to do with her momentarily attuning to the rhythm of peace and then hearing her own voice screaming and being very disturbed yeah, by it. Yeah, it's a heel turn spread. A heel turn spread. <laughs> yes. It's a Jamie Lannister spread. <laughs> Redemption arc spread. Right. Ignite. <laughs> I only fucked my sister until I found out she was a bitch. <laughs> what I think is interesting in the situation with the Parshendi is this idea of the futility of escalation when you have two kind of equal powers at war with each other. And at this point, the Alethi and the Parshendi are not equal because the Parshendi have really been taking a beating, but you've got these, these two sides and the Parshendi out of fear that the humans were going to regain surge binding abilities because of what they saw with Kaladin, um, bring this, this storm spread back into the mix and the Spren, on the other hand, um, are bringing, coming back and making the Nahel bond with humans again because they are afraid of the Storm Spren that they're seeing. Yeah. And, you know, it, you, we get the sense that there was this sort of like this kind of nuclear ceasefire that nobody really knows about or understands anymore. But now it's getting picked apart by uh, by by just fear that the other side is going to get is going to get the bomb before we do. It, it does sort of have that vibe to it. I I agree with you there. There, and I'm not going to keep going down the road with with this in this particular interlude. There are some things that come up in chapter sixty that kind of echo back to this. So I'll talk about that more there. A couple of notes, just that Esha and I can hear people talking to and advising her in the new rhythms, which is interesting and not something that we've seen with their rhythms before. I, I don't know. I I think the Parshendi and their rhythms are very interesting. And they kind of do what, for me, what the ADEM had with their hand talk in the mm -hmm. Kingkiller Chronicles, but that I found a little, I don't I mean, it wasn't that I disliked it. It was just kind of meh for me. But the idea of having this, like, collective emotional subconscious that you could, like, physically hear, I think is really interesting. You know, especially yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in how they like communicate with each other. And and they do have like like when she's talking about her friend Thude and how he's kind of fakes a certain rhythm, but she's known him long enough to know when he's she can tell when he's faking, faking his rhythm. I just think it's very interesting to look at how they would communicate and what honesty would mean to them. And so for her to go around sort of starting to lie and she does like not only does she, is she deceptive in that she sticks to the old rhythms because it seems to make them easier to manipulate. But she also boldface lies to them when they ask about the meeting with the Parshendi. Yeah. And you think this is a people where, where outright deception like that is probably fairly uncommon. I would think so. Yeah. I think one of the problems for me with the Parshendi and the rhythms, like I agree, it's a really interesting premise, but to me, they remind me of the kids singing monsters app. Do you remember that one? No. It's this game where, like, they have this little place, and they put these monsters out, and 
some of the monsters have this rhythm and some of the monsters have that rhythm, but they all kind of fit into kind of a master rhythm and you can add and tweak and some sing this way and that way. But uh, it just reminds me of all the different rhythms of the Parshendi and how it's all sort of still kind of limited within this real constrained place. And it just reminds me of singing monsters. I don't even know. No one's going to get it. I understand. <laughs> I don't get it. That is never. And I live in the same That has never you. stopped me from doing it. <laughs> it really hasn't. Oh, so one other thing before we before we move on. This also reminds me, obviously, that Dalinar is going to go out and attempt to lead an army out into the Shattered Plains during the Weeping, when there will be no storms. He's he's going to have to fight 17,000 Parshendi. He doesn't have 17,000 soldiers. Now, we don't know who his allies are at this point, but they seem to be very few. So I don't think they could beat the Parshendi even if they don't get a high storm. Now, do you believe that Dalinar knows how many Parshendi are out there? No, I, I, I don't believe that. I also think, I think that if he had to guess, that would probably be about the number he thinks, though. I, I mean, I would have thought on the basis of the information that we had been told that it probably would have been around 20 to 25,000. So 17,000, it's a little below that. Even. So I think what you have to remember in the Alethi versus Parshendi conflict is that the Parshendi have one shard bearer. The Alethi have dozens, which we've seen in the conflict, even one or two shard bearers, almost completely evens the playing field when there are more Parshendi. So it might be more of an even match than you would expect just looking at the numbers. I disagree, but that's okay. It's kind of irrelevant because they're going to go out there and get blown off the cliffs anyway. Well, it's relevant in that if you feel like Dalinar is is being portrayed as a as a competent military commander and if you think that he's marching deliberately into a really stupid situation then it matters there I disagree I think that he's heading out there with with the idea that he could win well I'll I'll counter my own argument in in this way that I think that on the face of it it is a foolish thing to do and there's no way in hell Dalinar has any chance of winning at all except that he has been receiving visions from something that have led him to go down this road and this is a world where the supernatural is real and does exist and there are God's that are actively involved in the in the world and the goings-on. So if you believe that and you're getting visions, now not that they're telling him specifically to, you know, to create an army and go out there, but they are leading him down this road, and they are giving him signs to go this direction. So I think in that sort of setting, 
when you know that, again, supernatural is real, you're getting these signs, I think you'd be more foolish to ignore them. Well, we've also had the the incident of the countdown appearing on the bedroom walls. Yeah, and so what is he going to He's not just going to sit there. I want to be clear that I think in human sort of materialistic terms, what Dalinar is going to do here is a foolish choice. I do not think that he's making the wrong move, however, because of all these other things that are, are at play mm-hmm. in the supernatural realm. Okay. I'm putting my soapbox away now. <laughs> Chapter 59 is called Fleet. Kaladin is languishing in prison. I mean, as far as prisons go, this one isn't too bad. But the betrayal by Elokar and the uncertainty of his future is driving Kaladin to despair. He's visited by Wit, who tells him the story of a man named Fleet, who raced a high storm and died just as he reached the border of Shinovar. He leaves Kaladin wondering about the meaning and about whether there is any purpose in running a race you are sure to lose eventually. The old Kaladin. Kaladin in a cage. Poor Kaladin. The thing that's the most interesting to me about this whole chapter is the disturbance that happens in the background. Right. That we never get a resolution as to what it is. Yes, is we do it not. Bridge Four trying to break Kaladin out? Is it a revolt between Dalinar and Sadius forces? Uh, is it a massive party? It, you know, did Adolin throw a huge party because he finally got rid of Kaladin? <laughs> you know, are he and Shallan boning down? <laughs> massive like techno beats dropping in the background. <laughs> Smashing furniture? I don't know. Like, But that is sort of the interesting thing that's sort of hanging out there to me, unresolved. Yes. And I'm like, what's going on? That's not for nothing. No, it's not. And then the other thing is Wit somehow acquired perfect pitch. Yes, he did. Now, I don't know how it works on Roshar. So I want to be careful to apply, not to apply human circumstances to this fantasy realm. But in our human world, you cannot acquire perfect pitch. You either have it or you don't. You're born with it. Mm-hmm. Unless you've been making appearances in Warbreaker uh, and you're carrying around a bunch of breaths with you uh, when you go to other planets. Uh. Good catch, Mr. Dukes. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I like it. So Wit tries to instigate Kaladin to tell this story. Right. So he wants to hear a story from Kaladin, but Kaladin doesn't know the story he wants him to tell. He start, starts playing this music, trying to draw it out of him. And then Kaladin begins to tell this story. And he says that when he was six or seven years old, he was constipated. And his grandparents were going to try to corner him and do something that he didn't want them to do. So, being the fastest five or six-year-old in his house, he ran his little butt off all around the house, jumping on furnitures because he didn't want to get caught by his grandparents who had a box that they were walking around that said fleet on the side of it. (laughs) 
Did I say Kaladin? I meant me. <laughs> That's a terrifying story. It's horrifying. Did it have a sad ending as well? Yes, for me. <laughs> I mean, no, in that eventually, you know, everything clear, everything came out fine. <laughs> so one thing is interesting that Wit says here as well, and he's kind of just doing his witty banter thing. But he says, okay, I'm going to, I'll tell you a, a story for a child. Because at first he's like, you know, you promised me a story. And Kaladin's like, blah, blah, everything sucks, the end. <laughs> and Wit says, oh, we're telling stories for children now. But he says, then he says, a bunny rabbit and a chick went frolicking in the grass. And uh, Kaladin says, a what? And Wit says, oh, let me make this more appropriate for you. A piece of wet slime and a disgusting crab thing with 17 legs slunk across the rocks together on a terribly rainy day. That was just kind of funny little reminder that he's not from this planet. Yeah, and this planet sucks. This planet sucks. Kind of does. No bunnies on this yeah. planet. <laughs> I don't want to live in a world where there's no bunnies. <laughs> there might be some in Shinovar. All right, fair enough. They call them hoppy chickens. <laughs> But it is very interesting when someone from Roshar is describing a uh, a regular animal that a, a we're creature used to. Who's yeah. not? I guess who knows? Not not covered in a carapace. Not covered in a carapace. They're like it has a weird face. Like ooh, it's don't touch it. It's gross. Squishy. But the story of Fleet, you know, I think it it nicely captures Kaladin's central crisis right now. Like learning to put the journey before a destination. You know, and he said the words. He was like, oh, and he meant it at the time, I think. But, you know, but like a lot of guys. A lot of guys, they mean it at the time. You know, at the time they mean it, but then. You know, when prop, properly in. motivated. <laughs> Lose their motivation. Then you got all this white stuff leaking out of you and you <laughs> need some place to put it. <laughs> You mean the words then. <laughs> but it sort of brings that that central crisis back to him. You know, the odds are he's going to end up on the losing side. But should doesn't that mean does that mean that he shouldn't keep trying? You know, and at, at the frame of mind he's in, he's thinking no. He's thinking just going to go kick rocks. <laughs> So you liked this sort of story within a story. I mean, I liked it okay. I, I I thought it served the purpose that it did. It didn't. I don't know why it didn't really speak to me like other story within a stories have and other books that we've enjoyed. It's always been one of my favorite things because, you know, from when I was a teenager and I loved reading Shakespeare and that was always my favorite part of it. And I like how that gets carried over oftentimes into fantasy novels and other and other novels. And I don't know, this one was just sort of eh for me. I guess what I like about it is well, I like Wit. He's one of my favorite characters. I like the way that he tells stories, and I like that there is a a direct purpose behind what he's doing with the story. I, I think it's like watching like a really brilliant therapist. Um, you know, bring something out of someone that they didn't realize needed to come up. 
and, and wit stories always seem to do that. Yeah. I, so I, I just think it's it's interesting. That's what makes it interesting to me. I think that my sort of issue with it is is just that I'm sort of right now kind of anti everything Kaladin because he's being such a dick. He is being kind of a dick. Like like Kaladin zero self-awareness there is like oh yeah there's not even a smidge of hmm i wonder if any part of my situation could have been avoided in any way by me doing anything differently yeah. <laughs> or is everything elokar's fault like is there <laughs> any way that i contributed to my problems at all nope nope <laughs> not at all i mean don't get me wrong his situation sucks. It his, does. His culture sucks. His society sucks. Like, you know, him being the fact that he did this heroic thing, fought all these shard bearers with, you know, a freaking stick. I mean, and then he doesn't get the right to challenge the person who put him, made him a slave. That sucks. Oh, it's, it's, but it's so absurd. Yeah. But it still doesn't change the fact that. He knew the situation. He had, going, yeah. yeah, he had a big hand yeah. in all of that. Yep. And just chose to walk walk right all over his dick. Just step right on it. it it's interesting. It, it does suck. Like, and even now, you know, weeks after having read it, the degree to which everyone gives Adolin... 100% of the credit for that victory <laughs> and completely ignores the fact that Kaladin was even there. Right. Is stunning. Yeah. But it doesn't change anything you just said. Right. Poor Kaladin. Poor Kaladin in a cage. Chapter 60 is called Vale Walks. Shallan and Pattern work on the mystery of Amaram's maps and the location of the Oath Gate. Shallan sees a pattern that might be a clue as to where the gate is found, but she's avoiding a more important issue. Pattern is encouraging her to allow her painful childhood memories to resurface, intimating that her memory block is hindering her powers from progressing. Lightweavers do not progress by finding words, but by self-actualization. Shallan is terrified of who she might become if she allows herself to remember those events and insists on trying to relearn her powers the hard way. So this chapter I enjoyed. I thought there was some interesting stuff in this chapter. It's We're at the beginning of part four, and these chapters are always kind of set up. Right. So there's you, you can't walk into them with an expectation that tons of interesting and cool things are going to happen. And in this chunk that we're reading here we get Kaladin's first chapter Shallan's first chapter and a Shallan flashback so you can't be surprised when you don't get a, a ton of stuff but this was of those three chapters this was the one I liked the most now if Shallan could find a way to invent the skateboard <laughs> so that her illusions could skate around the war camps That'd be so rad. Then she's she's really into something then. So it does, I think, also... Uh, so there's a couple of other points that I wanted to make in here. The first is that I really like how Shallan is trying to manipulate Sabariel. Sabariel? I can never remember. Mm -hmm. 
I like how she's talking, uh, how she's leaving notes that would leave hints to him that there might be some huge, massive treasure Mm -hmm. in the middle of the Shattered Plains Mm -hmm. so that she can find a way to get out there. I just think it's kind of clever. We don't really get... Nothing happens with it, but right. but I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that come to something. There was one other line that I caught when they were kind of arguing about her past, and she talks about and dreams that became real. And then I have to think, wait a minute, was she prior to her, you know, losing her mind with her memory, her mother's death, or whatever? I'm assuming that's what it was that sort of drove her into this. A semi-catastonic state that she was in and she's coming out of. Mm-hmm. Was she actually far more powerful back then and she could just imagine things, daydream things, and those things actually happened? It seems to indicate... Well, we, we, It certainly seems to indicate that she was more powerful then than she is now. Pattern has said to her several times, you used to be able to do this back then. And then she vaguely remembers patterns of light, playing with patterns of light. Um, But Pattern has said to her several times, you used to know this. That's interesting. I wonder, I wonder if it's, it might be one of these things where her, not that her ability to draw, but her fascination with art might stem from her attempting to recapture what she, with pencil, what she used to be able to do in reality. Mm-hmm. But Shalon is so interesting. It's it's hard in this to watch her get confronted about her memories. And it's interesting because I feel like I have a lot less patience with Kaladin always going back to his old, his old blah, 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 his old, oh, I'm sad again. Oh, you know. Everything won't turn out perfectly in the end, so I guess I'm just going to give up. That kind of thing. Well, that's his central character crisis. But when Shallan keeps going back to hers, I have a lot more patience for it. You know, and her crisis that she keeps coming back to is she's afraid of herself. And she's afraid of the real Shallan. Because if she becomes her, she's going to be this, this wretch who never stops crying. And she learned to take that person and kind of like, like pack her up tight and become someone else who could function and that for i don't know for me maybe i just find that more relatable well i think there's my take on it and maybe i'm reading it wrong but my take on it is also i think that she's afraid that i mean something happened with shallan's old powers right clearly they're locked away in a box in her her father's office in her father's office he took her powers away and said, you'll never do this again. I'm taking your iPad. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, her mother died under what's clearly some very mysterious purposes. Whether it seems to be at the hand of her father, whether it was really her father or a projection of her father, s- there's some guilt yeah. there that she doesn't want to face. Right. Chapter 61 is called Obedience. We get another chilling flashback into Shallan's childhood. After saving Jushu, Shallan becomes the perfect daughter, terrified of upsetting her father. She and Balat try to make a plan for escape, but it's not looking good. 
Shallan's father is in the grip of something dark and terrible, even as his fortune seems to be rising. His grip on his sanity seems to be slipping away completely, and Shallan and her brothers are paying the price. Yeah, this chapter sucked. Yeah, this was especially the Axehound puppies. Yeah, it's not that the chapter sucked. It's just... It was hard to read. It was hard to read, exactly. And, I mean, my only note is... Ghost bloods kill puppies. Fuck those guys. <laughs> That's it. So I think we get a sense here that at this point, Shallan's house has been invaded by outsiders. Mm-hmm. And we know that they're affiliated with the ghost bloods. Right. Because of her one servant who died who had the symbol. We don't get a huge amount of backstory into why the change. I find it interesting that her her older brother, Hilarion, ended up running off with the ghost bloods, and there was all kinds of angst because of it, and yet at home they end up getting sort of infiltrated by the ghost bloods as well. Mm-hmm. So I find that sort of interesting. But, yeah, tough chapter to read. Mm-hmm. But yet I feel like Shallan just develops so beautifully in these flashbacks. And I find it so interesting to compare her with Kaladin. I feel like the way that Brandon Sanderson develops Kaladin is that he explains him to us a lot. And, I, you know, his his writing can be kind of polarizing. And I think that's one thing that people tend to either do okay with or really not like that he tends to be like okay he felt sad because of this and these are all the reasons in his story and he just kind of lays it out some people really like that some people really don't but especially with Kaladin there's a lot of explaining how he's feeling why he's feeling that way but with Shallan she gets a lot more of a natural development process and part of that is that this whole idea of of her memories being locked away he kind of can't reveal them to us at this point so we have to kind of wonder and guess there's a lot more hints mm-hmm. and um i don't know but i i just i dig her character she's i think that's why she becomes one of my favorites i definitely think she's a better executed character i think she's also doesn't suffer from the yoke of Kaladin is the first main character, and he's the first one to get all these powers. Mm -hmm. And it seems very clear that he's going to be like, you know, standing on a rocky mountaintop with the wind in his hair. And, you know, at the end of this whole thing, right? And so you kind of bring to his character all these expectations of every other typical hero that you've ever read about and then Shallan you know gets introduced in a very different way and you don't bring all that to her Mm -hmm. so I think a combination of that plus I agree with you I think she's better written Mm -hmm. I think makes her a more interesting character hear that guys we agree it happens every once in a while (laughs) we don't agree about the story within a story no that's okay So, chapters 62 through 67, you can finally read them. Yes, it's been it's been like 2 weeks now. <laughs> I forgot what happened. 
I mean, I didn't because I just did this podcast, but. <laughs> All right. Are we ready for some listener interactions? Yes. So over a week ago, we put the we put the question out there. Hey, we're going to do episode uh, 90. Actually, this is 91. I just realized. What? This is 91. Because last week we did Warbreaker and made that episode. Oh, damn it. (laughs) That's it. Ah, that's fine. We'll cancelled. We'll tax something at the beginning. You know what? We we can't issue it now. (laughs) Cancelled. Cancelled. I'm I'm sorry. Not fit for consumption. And not talk about this section again with you. <laughs> Third time's a charm. All right. So anyway, we put out uh, a week ago the announcement of, hey, get your questions in. And then mm, the episode didn't happen. So so we have week old questions that we're going to get back to and we're going to answer. The first of which comes from Thea Graham Brown and says, Hey, Chad, do you think Lyft will be the titular character of Edge Dancer? <laughs> How could she not be? You know, it's the first titular character, titular line we've had in a while. I think that's why Theo asked that question, because he knew how much you wanted to say he, titular he a couple of times. He had titular blue balls. Theo also says, is there another assassin? Sounds like Seth hasn't done a murder since meeting Kaladin, but two primes were recently killed by the assassin in white. I take that as more of just the timeline not being right. perfectly chronological. Yeah, that's how I took it, too. Just we haven't heard. I mean, he did this whole rash, but things are moving at different speeds. Yeah, I think that's the more simple explanation than that there is another assassin in white. So I'm going to... I'm going to go with that unless I get more evidence to the contrary. Samuel Denberg says, ah, lift and darkness. What do you think? Who? What do you think darkness is? And who is the mother lifts spren keeps talking about? So we address the mother. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think it's clear that the night watcher is involved. Right. I'm a little unclear about whether. The mother is in reference to cultivation, mm-hmm. but she also went to go see Night Watcher, mm-hmm. or if they're one in the same. Like, right. So there's definitely some things that aren't answered there, but uh, but the Night Watcher for sure, mm-hmm. and maybe also cultivation. What about darkness? Uh, you oh, know, we, I guess we kind of talked about. Yeah, him we too. talked about him a lot. What but do you think he is? I mean, I think he's one of the one of the heralds. Andrew Lobley says, with epic fantasy books being large and often covering multiple books being published over many years, would you like to see a brief synopsis of what has happened so far at the beginning of each book? I mean, for me, I I don't really care for that. I would rather, but I I love doing rereads. I mean, for me. If it's a series that I care about enough to read, I'm going to I'm going to reread it when the new one comes out. That's not true. There have been times where I've like read plot synopsis online. 
because I didn't really want to read the whole thing again. But usually I'll just do a reread. I kind of went back and forth on this because my initial thought was no. I, I didn't like the idea of it. But the more I think about it, I'm actually kind of annoyed when authors will start book two, book three, and then start kind of lay, laying the groundwork and hitting some of the high points and the characters will reflect in their minds, oh, that's because of blah, 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 which are things that you would know, you know, if you had read. And that sort of, to me, takes me out of the narrative mm -hmm. because it doesn't seem realistic to me. Mm -hmm. So, But having like an optional sort of synopsis that you could either read or not read, I think it actually would kind of be pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, Brent Weeks does that with Lightbringer, I believe, at the front of each. It's, it's you know, it's like a previously on. Yeah. <laughs> and Previously. <laughs> previously on Lightbringer. Like, I tried reading them, and it does help you understand the plot points, but it doesn't, like, I still wanted to go back and read those books. Mm -hmm. I, I, it doesn't give you the same, like, it doesn't take you to the same place emotionally, where you're, like, at the end of that book, you really want to read the next one. You know, I, I, I'm like, okay, I'm reminded of what happened with the characters, but I'm not feeling it. So, yeah, for me, I just want to reread the whole book mm -hmm. and count it toward my 52 books a year because rereads <laughs> count. Of course they I do. I read those words. They were on my eyeballs. It counts. <laughs> Susan King thinks that the Comet Spren, the, the, the Jamie Lannister Spren, the heel turn spren. She thinks it's an honor spren. What do you think? I don't think it's an honor spren because I think we see an honor spren in Sill. And they look... They look more like wind spren. They look a lot like yeah. wind spren. So I don't think it's that, but I, I certainly wouldn't know what else it would be. So I, I don't really have a, have a, have a counter there. Susan King says, and I think this is a quote from the book uh, referring to Ashonai. Ashonai thinks her people deserved better with the return of the gods, they would have better. And she says the Parshendi have been trying to keep the gods from returning up to this point. Who do you think is putting the idea of returning the gods into her head? The gods. I, I mean, that would be the most obvious culprit. They're like, yeah. hey, man. <laughs> hey. To, you know, it'd be cool. You remember us. We came back. We're getting the band back together, man. <laughs> oh, we skipped one. Hold on. So Caleb O'Brien says, I haven't listened in ages and will take a while before I catch up. Have you guys been doing anything particularly awesome happening in your lives you want to talk about? Hey, Caleb. Hey, Caleb. Welcome back. In five or six months when you get to this. We'll tell you what we were doing five or six months ago. I don't know. I don't know where he is. But. <laughs> so yeah, we're uh, we're pretty busy. We got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. So you're taking classes. I'm starting to take classes now. I'm in the middle of a certification. We have two kids in two travel sports leagues, which I never appreciated how incredibly time consuming that would be. Let me tell you something. So like. We decided we were going to have, we had four babies in six years, okay? And I thought that the hardest part, like once we get past, you know, six, seven, that was going to be the hardest part, okay? When none of them could, could wipe their own butts. 
that was not the hardest part. No. <laughs> it wasn't. When you have four kids under six, I mean, it's hard. I'm not going to lie. It's hard. But like adding that fourth kid, the third kid, the fourth kid doesn't like exponentially add that much more work. It really doesn't because you just, you just do it. Now, <laughs> now's when it gets you. When they all want to be active and doing things and. And none of them can drive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's awesome. It is awesome. Yeah. It's all good stuff. I will never complain about it. No, um, and, you know, I, I dreaded these years for so long because I was like, oh, my God, that's what am I going to do when they all want to do stuff? I don't like doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 watching your kid do something they love and get better at it is like I also get why, you know, parents are put like a million pictures of their kids in like blurry soccer game. I mean, I get it now. I get yeah. it now because it's it's awesome. It's great. We've also been participating in some cons. We went to Farpoint Con and Liz Heck would yeah, we did. participated in a panel there. And we've got some plans to be doing a panel, our own panel, at Balticon. So that's exciting. Mm-hmm. I think at this point we can say... Oh, hold on. Official announcement. I think we can say at this point that we are going to have our 100th episode recorded at Balticon during our panel and the topic will be King Killer Chronicles Theories. Bring your tinfoil. It's going to be awesome. I really, really hope some of our East Coast listeners will be able to come. We would love to meet some of you for the first time. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm very excited about it. We may be doing a few other things there as well. We may have a trivia event that we may be putting together. So more to come on that front, but we will definitely be there Memorial Day weekend. Balticon, baby. Bring it. Lots of stuff. So thanks for asking, Caleb. Enough about us. Let's talk about us. <laughs> okay. Uh, Ian James Crone says, who is your favorite side character and why is it Lyft? Clearly, it's lived. What order of radiance have we not seen that you want to see? I don't pay attention. I only kind of pay attention to the radiance that are actively involved in the story. Right. So they have all these sort of... Ones that have been mentioned. You know, judge binders and book wielders and hair twirlers. I definitely want to see hair twirlers (laughs) on the battlefield. I want to see what they can do. What do they mention? They mentioned Bondsmiths. The Bondsmith. Are there any affiliated with ice cream? Would that be your that be your bag? Uh, I, I, otherwise, I'm not interested. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know. I don't know enough about it to say which ones. I, I don't really have one I want to see. Right. Because I'm really kind of only paying attention. You're just you're just treading water. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I got three. I got three kinds that are that I can see all actively that I'm reading about, and then I've got these mofos with their honor blades on uh-huh. top of it. Uh-huh. Uh, that's enough for me right now. Brian McClure says, "What was your favorite interlude, and why was it lift?" <laughs> and then Eric Allgaier says, "What is your favorite ride-hailing smartphone app, and why is it lift?" I mean, what else could it be, really? What else could it be? <laughs> Brian also says, can we trust what darkness told Lyft? 
And for the reasons that I stated, yeah, I, I think so, because I don't think there's any reason at the point that he told her that he would have any reason to lie. Because he expected her to be dead in moments later. So Theo Graham Brown has a controversial opinion. He says, come on until she saved the boy where none of you hoping darkness would just kill Lyft and put her out of our misery. No. No. Sorry, Theo. Controversial. No, I, I quite enjoyed the Lyft chapters. Now, I get it. I could I can see how this is sort of like the sassy punky Brewster girl character right. trope and I could see how somebody could not like that because I mean it is kind of a trope I'm not gonna deny that but but I dug it Brian yeah, McClure I'm on the lift train yeah Brian McClure also says will Shalon ever allow herself to remember and uh I'm gonna say by the end of this book I mean if she didn't that'd be some bullshit Right. I mean, I think at some point she's going to have to. Right. Whether it's the end of this book or or later in the series. It's a major plot point blue balls. Right. But no, I definitely, I think she will at some point. Brian McClure also says, what is investiture? So I think investiture, I actually was not sure about this as, as well. But I think investiture is just the process of taking Stormlight into your body and turning it into something else. Right. It is interesting to note the characters that call it that. Yeah, because I don't think we, I don't remember hearing it until the lift chapter. And, but then Shalon also uses it in chapter 60. She may have used it earlier and I just don't recall but Shalon and and uh, Mr. Wendell are the only ones I've heard use it mm-hmm. that I can recall. And Mr. Wendell tried to warn us. We don't hear him talking. <laughs> Brian McClure says, any thoughts on the unique system of choosing leadership uh, that the Azish have? Uh, sucks for that guy. <laughs> I mean, as a huge fan of paperwork... <laughs> I would move there. <laughs> you thought it was cool. I hey, thought it was cool. I know, mean, it just makes sense. It's, uh, you know, it's egalitarian. It's a meritocracy. You don't get that a lot in fantasy novels. That's right. Just, just you know, file the proper paperwork. It it stinks for, uh, for our boy who thinks he can heal himself, though. Brian McClure also says, best quote for this section. Bunnies. No, my favorite is uh, when Wendell finally kind of tries to clap back at Lyft and he says, I seem to have noticed that for someone who thinks that she's a master thief, I seem to do all the work in this relationship. <laughs> and she just says, you do all the complaining, too. <laughs> it's funny. He also says, why do you think Wit told the story of Fleet to Callan? I think he just had to get it out. I think it was bottled up inside him. It had been there that way for days, and, uh, you know, he just needed to get it out. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about that in, in the coverage, what the point of that was. I just wanted to, you know, hint at enema jokes. Oh, right. I'm sorry. Oh, I 
I just got it. See, I had a huge, well, a huge but not very good joke last time. We tried to record this episode, and I can't dip into the same well. Not as good as the enema joke. Just for the re- just for- picture that guy. <laughs> I the enema joke was the high bar here. <laughs> I, well, and it's not a very high bar. <laughs> I thought the other joke was better, but you know. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Don't look at the. <laughs> No. See what you've done here, Brian McClure. Susan also says, do you think Wit will help Kaladin get to the truth about Amaram? Will he and, and also will he help Shallan? I, I don't I think to the point you made earlier, I don't think his intention is to help him figure out the truth about Amaram. I think his intention is to get him to get off of his resentment right and get yes. on with doing the right thing i don't really know about shallan i mean i tend i tend to think that is kind of his role so yes but only only because of that mm-hmm. ian trezee says do you think Oh, Kaladin ending his story with he died, he didn't make it, the end. Do you think this is foreshadowing on what will happen to Kaladin in the series? I, I don't know. I think he's going to end up on top of the hill, the mountain wind blowing in his glossy black mane. Yeah, that's what I think is going to happen, yeah. Or it's going to be like a little bit of a, of a Luke Skywalker thing, and then he went and lived in a cave. Glorious beard. <laughs> Ian also says... Wendell seems very knowledgeable, so the Nahel bond between them has been established. Has an ideal been sworn? And how many, do you think? So, we didn't talk about this, but in in the Lyft interlude, in Interlude 9, before she goes and heals Gawks, she says what I think is her second yes. set of words. And she also mentions, well, when she's talking about her pet Voidbringer... Yeah. And um, she says that she she captured him with words. So I assume that's referring to the first ideal. Mm, yeah, it makes sense. That would make sense. So yes, this would probably be the second ideal, and then she gains the power of regrowth. Ian also says, when darkness throws a bound-up winged creature with shimmering eyes, do you recall any similar creatures? Yeah, we you got that. Uh, to be fair, so I don't normally read these questions. I might periodically, like, poke at them but i try not to read these questions ahead of time because i don't want to get influenced in any of my suggestions uh but i looked at this thread ahead of time and that's the one question i saw so i I didn't get that on my i was really surprised i didn't get that on my read through Mm -hmm. i saw that and said oh there's something more to that thing went back and did the research and figured out what it was uh, but I would not have picked it up on my own. Yeah, I was surprised that you had. I would not have. <laughs> Ian also says, a clean version of Mary Bike Ride Cliff <laughs> called Mary Kill Pluck, <laughs> where the plucking consists of removing feathers from the excessive chicken populations and preparing them for the Alethi war camps. So, Duchess... Who do you marry, pluck, kill? 
between Darkness, Sadius, and Iceberg Slim Lin. <laughs> I mean, I have to kill Sadius because, um, you know, he's obviously the ultimate tool. I think Darkness would be a terrible lay, but I think he'd be a good husband because he's not going to step outside of the lines. We know he's good at paperwork. <laughs> you just got to, you know, like uh, Sheldon in the Big Bang Theory, you just have to have your roommate contract. Have it lined out. Have it lined out. That's right. So I would marry Darkness, and I guess then I'd have to pluck with Iceberg Slim Lynn. I mean, he might be a jerk, but nobody said he couldn't cook a chicken. So one last question. Brian McClure says, any thoughts on the new epigraphs? And yes, we have thoughts. We are going to not get into them on this podcast, but... We think about things. We think about things. No, we have we have a new letter showing up in these epigraphs. We do. Which we will um, just let a little more of it come out before we get into it but we have plans to read both the letters and discuss them in the near future in a future episode stay tuned are you ready for some predictions yes predict it all right prediction number one i think Eurothero is the hub on which the entire continent spins hmm. i note i mean it's this big spindle sticking up in the air Somebody pinched it and then spun the continent around it. Mm -hmm. I've noted before that if you take a look at Roshar, it looks like somebody, it looks like somebody grabbed the continent and spun it real fast, mm -hmm. and a bunch of islands spun out all kinds of different directions. So it looks like the continent itself has shifted or had yeah. something happen. And I think Eurothero is right dead center mm -hmm. now. Given that, and given my assumption that. Seth is traveling south to Carboranth, then that would put Eurothiru in the mountains south of the Pure Lake, I think, between Bovland and Triax. Hmm. Now, in that area, it could it could also be a little bit to the east of there. I'm sorry, to the west of there, but that would put it perfectly due north of Carboranth and pretty much smack dead center in Roshar. So that's my take on that. I'm going to take a little bit of a detour here because there's some something related to this in chapter 60 that I didn't bring up. And that mm. is the concept that the Parshendi didn't make all those really cool weapons. They got them from previous civilizations. This is again goes into my thing I don't like about the way the Parshendi are being treated. Yeah. Like why don't they get why can't they have their own sort of like why do they have to rely on some other culture, right? More to the point, one of the things I'm going to happen and this is my my next prediction. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think is going to happen and I don't like it is that some Alethi is going to walk into is it Narak? Is that the name of the city? Narak. Narak is going to walk into Narak and find the oath gate that leads to Eurothero. Mm -hmm. The Parshendi have lived there for six years. Mm -hmm. Why didn't they find it? I think it would have been a much more interesting story if they found it. And then 
instead of the big coup being that they turn into storm form and sweep the Alethi off the plains, being that they pop up in the middle of the continent and find a way out of this mess. I think that would have been a better twist of the story. But it just sort of sticks in my crawl that these people have lived here six years. He's trying to make them be like a complete and cool culture, but he's giving all the he's given all the cool stuff to other people. I don't know. I don't like it. Anyway. Well, I will just say that the Parshendi are just beginning to be explored. Okay. That is what I will say. My next set of, my next prediction is that the Parshendi who escape are going to make it to the Shattered Plains and all be destroyed by Sadius. That's a very bleak prediction. Well, Sadius is a dick. Yes, he is. I think Darkness wields an honor blade, which I believe I mentioned. I and think you that, said you think he's a herald. I think he's one of the heralds, and I think it. Oh, mm-hmm. well. Okay. And I also think his sword is an honor blade, right. not a shard blade. I think the uh, town of Narak has leads to has an oath gate that leads to your theater. I've kind mm-hmm. of already said that. I think Shib- uh, Sabariel is going to betray Shalon. Mm. I also think Shalon's dad killed Shalon's stepmom in that flashback. Mm. And we just don't know it yet. All right. Those are my dark, dark, sad-ass predictions. Very dark predictions. (laughs) All right. Do you have anything else? I do not. All right. You can find us at the dukeandduchesspodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at the DND Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. The number one place to hang out with us and interact with us is on our Facebook group page, which is at Facebook forward slash groups forward slash the DND group. We are on all the cool social medias at Instagram, Reddit, and Goodreads as well, though we're not on them quite as much. And that's it. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.